Welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I were part of the Governance of Emerging Technologies Conference with our friends at ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor School of Law. We were so excited to sit down with Todd Kukin, who is a senior research scholar at the Genetic Engineering and Society Center at North Carolina State University. Todd had previously been a senior program associate with the Science and Technology Innovation Program at the Wilson Center, where he led programs addressing the societal interaction or intersection with nanotechnology and synthetic biology. And he's a leading expert on the DIY bio and biohacking movement. And we got to talk with Todd about uh, the the biohacking community and the uh, hacker lab community that has sprung up around the country and around the world. It was a pleasure to be able to talk with him in front of a live audience at the Governance of Emerging Technologies Conference. So as you listen to this recording, you may hear some rumblings and rustlings from people because it was great. We had uh, a collection of scholars and students from actually around the world in the room with us. Before we get to the episode, as always, thank you for listening to the Future Out Loud podcast. We are so glad that you're here. And wouldn't it be great if you told your friends about the future? Out Loud podcast. And of course, you can find us wherever you find your fine podcasts, whether it's Stitcher or SoundCloud or the uh, iTunes podcast store or uh, Google Play, or you can find this episode and all of our old episodes at our website, futureoutloud.org. So without further ado, on with Todd Kukin. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Heather. Hi, Todd. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for being here. And we have a room full of uh, audience as well. Uh, We are, and I say this for listeners because this is a little bit different than the usual podcast ambiance in my incredibly luxurious office in the pinnacle of public education in Arizona. Um, We are in another building of the pinnacle of public education in Arizona. We're at ASU's law school for the Governance of Emerging Technologies conference Mm -hmm. and uh, so we they were kind enough to allow and even encourage Andrew and me to be here and have conversations with actual experts in the field in front of real people so we have a real audience here exactly welcome audience yes thank you for being here a novel idea yes exactly (laughs) well we are all about emerging technologies and novel ideas after all so Todd biohacking yeah, um, so it's a it's a fascinating, exciting world that's going on. Um, it's really exploded over about the last, I'd say, five years or so. Um, when I first started looking at the DIY bio community about eight years ago, there was literally less than a handful of these community biotech labs. Um, and now we've identified at least 80 globally, so they're literally so, pretty much everywhere all over the world. So, so, okay. so backing up a... a a little bit. So DIY bio, 
Biolabs. Um, tell us a little bit about it. So, so is this just ordinary people with no education doing biology? It's it's everyone, right? Okay. So it's a combination of ordinary people with no biology education all right. the way up to professionally trained scientists in academic all, all in university the same labs environment. that now have access to these community spaces that are fully functioning biotechnology laboratories. Mm-hmm. And, and what sort of stuff are they doing there? Um, it's a sort of a variety of things. I would say a, a lot of the labs or most of the labs are working on sort of different types of group projects, very sort of, I would say, kind of basic um, bioengineering and genetic engineering projects. But you also have individuals that are working on their own projects that are sort of, they also operate as, as in a sense, uh, incubator spaces. So people that are looking to start companies can come into these spaces and try out their ideas and build them up. Um, and to see where they go. Okay, so when you say bioengineering and genetic engineering, I immediately think of designer babies, of course, yes. as, as one would. Right. Um, but and then I think about our colleague Di Bowman, who has is uh, working on projects uh, related to the ethics of um, that three parent. Isn't Di doing that, or she am does. I making so that she's up? She's doing okay. three parent babies. Yes. yes. Yes, with a mitochondrial DNA yep. donor and things like this. Is that what people are doing no. in these labs? <laughs> so, okay. Do you you know what yeah. what people all still always need to remember is that biology is hard yeah. um, and so why when we say that the technology is becoming democratized and it's accessible um, there is still a lot of work that goes involved in say making a designer baby if you actually had the intent of doing that uh-huh. um, and I think we always have to come back to that question of what's the intent of what these people are interested in what they're doing um, I haven't heard of anyone in these community labs that are interested in, in building a designer baby in but, one of these spaces. But, but a lot of this is around messing around with genetic code. Is that, is that correct, or does it go beyond there? Um, I think that's probably accurate. It's, mm-hmm. you know, I think because some of the technologies are accessible, it's sort of sparking people's interest and curiosities. And right, so right. it's enabling people to sort of explore in that space. Um, but that jump from sort of exploration in that space to say creating a designer baby is a big gap right yes yeah yeah is it though because i mean i saw all the michael crichton movies (laughs) you know that makes you an expert i believe obviously (laughs) obviously no but i mean think things can go unintentionally wrong sure right with manipulating genetic code in a way that you didn't expect and drosophila that then you know like defecates on your lunch and then you know all right. breaks loose <laughs> for example <laughs> right I so so yes obviously things can always go wrong I think though if you look at the DIY community and what the community has done to try to proactively address a lot of these mm-hmm. sorts of concerns the one of the first things the community did oh this is eight years ago now, I think, um, when we did this, they developed codes of conduct. Um, And so Mm -hmm. they've laid out what their sort of ethics are Mm -hmm. around this space, recognizing the power of the technology Mm -hmm. and recognizing their responsibility in terms of of harnessing that that technology. So I I wanted to talk to you about that because, as you well know, the New York Times came out with this article a few days ago as DIY (laughs) gene editing gains popularity quotes, someone is going to yeah, get Yeah, a, a classic I, clickbait article. That's right. And I know you were not happy with this. <laughs> no, I was not because it's, it's actually poorly researched and are, and are making um, connections and assumptions that just are, are factually inaccurate. And, and so it paints the entire community as something as dangerous and just fails to acknowledge 
Um, a lot of the work that the community has done between developing these codes of conduct, we have an Ask a Biosafety Officer program where the community has access to biosafety officers. These labs actually have review processes where anyone who comes into the lab first gets trained in, mm -hmm. in biosafety and then any project that they're you know, thinking of doing gets reviewed before any work is actually done. Okay. Um, and we have a new project now where we're visiting about 30 labs across the globe to sort of get a updated view of what's actually going on. The, the labs have spread, mm -hmm. they've also become more sophisticated. Um, and as part of that, we're hiring three biosafety fellows that are going to be embedded living and working in three of these labs for a full year, right. developing new biosafety protocols that are accessible to the actual so, so community. So how, how did this come about? Because, I, you would, yes, you would think naively that if you have sort of this hacker community <coughs> hacking biology, um, why wouldn't they just do wild things and uh, why would they try and constrain themselves? So how did this, this culture of, that sounds like it's quite safe and responsible come about? I think because the community is responsible, right? right? And so, so <laughs> I, it really is that simple. Right. Um, and it gets back to this intent, right? And one of my issues with this article is that there's no discussion of intent, right? They jump mm -hmm. from, oh, well, someone is doing something, you know, in one of these community labs, which is mostly public education, mm -hmm. um, I'd like to point out, right. um, where they teach classes to people that would never have had access to that type of education or those types of tools right. um, or laboratory skills. And they then just make this jump to pandemic viruses right. mm -hmm. without discussing any of the intent of someone wanting to do that, not to mention pretty much impossible to get a hold of the materials that you would probably need to, to if you could even do yeah. it, create one of these so, killer pandemic so, viruses. So do, you, do you then get a sense of what really motivates people to get involved? What sort of things do they want to be able to do or create? You know, it's it's hard to put it in, in any real box, I would say, because each what's really fascinating about this movement is that each individual lab or each individual space is completely different from right. the one next to it, mm -hmm. just based on the makeup of the community, of, of physically where mm -hmm. the actual lab is. So in GenSpace in New York, they have a lot of artists that are mm -hmm. inside that community lab because mm -hmm. they're in New York City. Um, in Silicon Valley, in BioCurious, the, the lab there, um, there's a lot of sort of incubators and startup models because they're in mm -hmm. Silicon mm -hmm. Valley. Um, in Los Angeles, they have different types of people there. And so it really does depend on where you're there. I would say the common thread, though, between all of these labs is this really sort of public education facing um, piece mm. to it, where the labs are giving courses so you can take classes in these labs with zero biology experience mm. and over time be able to sort of um, you know, work on an experiment or work on a group project um, in this space. Very cool. So I have a couple of questions. You've said community. You've used the term community several times. And, you know, we can think about community in different ways. We can think about community as the group of people in a municipality, right, who then participate in this physical space, in this real instantiation of a, a lab, right, a community lab. But then we can also think about the community as the larger sort of Silomar level um, you know, governing uh, structure. The, the, the experts. With the the quote. Yes. Well, the quote experts, or I would say the quote people who choose to identify themselves mm -hmm. as part of this broader community. So, 
you know, that's one of one of my questions and like how, um, you know, how is this community thinking about itself on multiple levels? Yeah, I mean, so obviously the community is, is self-identified, mm-hmm, right? So people mm-hmm. who are part of, um, you know, one of these community biotech labs mm-hmm. is part of that community. There's a, um, a level above that, which would be DIYBio.org, which is sort of the beginnings of this, right. of this movement, oh, which okay. is in essence a website that collects um, the different projects that people are working on. And it's a place for people to come and start learning about and actually mm-hmm. meeting other people um, in the community. Mm-hmm. Because um, before there were community labs, there were just meetup groups of okay. people that were just okay. interested mm-hmm. in this. And they quickly sort of realized that if they really wanted to work with biology or work mm-hmm. with biotechnology, that they, they really did need a physical space to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, doing that around a kitchen table is fine for very basic things, but if you really wanted to sort of work on other things, you needed mm-hmm. a space. And so... When GenSpace opened in Brooklyn, which was um, arguably the first community lab, GenSpace and BioCurious in California sometimes fight about who opened first, but um, that sort of was the beginning of of really the explosion of these labs, and then ever since then, the numbers have just been been growing steadily. Okay. So are there... What are the lessons to learn from this model of organic community formation that we might apply to other thoughts about governance in other areas? Well, actually, I'm even thinking about areas like artificial intelligence, which at the moment is largely constrained to sort Mm -hmm. of experts. Cybersecurity. Yeah, I mean, so I think there's some lessons you can learn, and I think there's also some things that, that probably aren't. Um, mirrored on to sort of other things. I think one, because the community was um, sort of opens on this sort of ethos of transparency and openness, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that in the beginning that it was relatively um, easy for the community to be able to come together and talk about things like, Mm -hmm. what are our ethics? What's the responsibility of us doing this? Uh Um, They also had, as this New York Times article um, so greatly demonstrates, They have this um, PR issue, in a Mm -hmm. sense, right, Mm -hmm. where there are people and the press and stories that can write a really easy story about, oh, my God, there's someone in their basement and they're going to release a killer Mm -hmm. virus. Right, right. Right? So that has always been there with this community. And so it's been a a driver, in a sense, for the community to really be proactive and outward-facing about all of the different... um, you know, ethics that they've put together, mm-hmm. their sort of codes of responsibility, sort of these safety programs. They have a relationship with the FBI, which mm-hmm. when that started, if you, when people asked me, I thought was insane, right, that you would have... So, 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 this, <laughs> yeah, so, so you should tell this story because, yes, instinctively you would think... FBI are going to be crawling all over this trying to stop it. But that was totally the opposite to the case. Yeah, it was. Mm-hmm. So the FBI in, in their Weapons of Mass Destruction Directorate, which <laughs> <Right>. is <laughs> great, right? You, you, you can see why they got interested <laughs> in this. Um, had, had an outreach program, not just to the DIY bio community, but to the life sciences in general. Mm-hmm. Um, there had not been a very good relationship between right. the FBI and university professors to... Mm-hmm. Um, to, to be honest. And so they, they had this program to try to sort of change that relationship. Mm-hmm. And they began having this conversation with the DIY bio community from the very beginning, um, really before um, there were any labs in existence, mm-hmm. to talk about issues about 
um, safety and to talk honestly about what the security concerns mm -hmm. might be about a new movement um, of people having access to biotechnology. Because um, we have to remember, you know, 10 years ago, we were not that far away from 9-11, right? So mm -hmm. there was True. still that sort of mentality. And, and the anthrax there. attacks. Absolutely. And the anthrax yes. attacks yes. Were, were sort of going on live mm -hmm. at, the, at the time. And what we've learned was, was that relationship has been really successful and fruitful. Um, one, because the labs have an under, a better understanding about what the FBI is concerned with and what other first responders are concerned with. Yes. So I think one of the benefits of that relationship was the FBI being able to make the introductions between a community lab space mm -hmm. and the local police department or the local fire department. Yes. So if some nosy neighbor or just curious neighbor mm -hmm. calls the police department and says, there's these weird kids with all of this lab equipment right. um, yeah. next door in this like mm -hmm. um, warehouse. I'm sure that's happened, yeah. um, there's a response that comes with that sure. from law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But if the, you have a relationship with them, that response is very different. Right. And so one of the first things we saw is when you invite in, say, the police department into your community lab, they quickly see that it doesn't look like a meth lab. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. your response completely changes. Right. Yeah. Um, but, but in addition to that, am I right in saying that these communities have also engaged with some pretty senior scientists and academics? Yeah, so if you look at some of the, the, the advisory boards of these community labs, you have um, high-level people on them. George Church, for instance, is on the advisory board of Genspace. Which, which, which um, I, I find <laughs> incredible. I mean, I would love to have someone like George Church on one of my advisory boards. Yeah, and, and, so, and we also have, you know, professional biosafety officers mm -hmm. that, you know, are... are attached to some of these labs and on the advisory boards. And I think why that is, is because when people look at what these spaces do and why people are joining these, it reminds us, those of us who have been in, in the science field and trained as scientists, of why we got involved in science in mm -hmm. the beginning, yep. right. which was a right. natural curiosity. Right. And before we got beat down by the sort of science machine of academia or, or industry, right, right. and you've lost you lost that joy of it. Oh, this mm -hmm. is so interesting. This, this ability yes, yeah. to then be able to have a place where you can go and share that excitement with other people mm -hmm. um, is why I think there's been so much um, support for the community. Does it? Do you think it evokes that sort of joy of social possibility and the notion that? you know, people are good and people want to do good in the world rather than, you know, the the gore and disaster that every headline in most major newspapers. I, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, I look at it at an even more basic level. Um, so when, when I've been touring around visiting these labs and talking to people about like, well, why did you start this place? Mm -hmm. Most of it, um, you know, some people are like, oh, well, we think that some innovation come out of this, right? The, 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 the classic Apple computer out of the garage mm -hmm. sort of scenario. But I would actually argue that that's not the main driver for this. It's just, it's a natural curiosity and people mm -hmm. interested in the science. Some of them come with a personal interest, like mm -hmm. maybe a parent or someone had a disease that they died sure. from, and so they're interested in exploring what that means. Mm -hmm. Some of them look outside their doors and there's an environmental problem that they mm -hmm. might, you mm -hmm. know, are interested in might want to solve. But I would say the majority of them are just interested in, in the science and and that's one of the things I think we're, we're missing with what these spaces can do. I mean, genetic engineering and GMOs and synthetic biology and biotech, whatever we want mm -hmm. to call it, mm -hmm. is a very controversial 
topic. Yes. And what better way to actually have public engagement and public dialogue around a technology than actually people being able to sort of see it right. live in, in front of them and have a conversation about it. That's not to say that that's going to then make them support the technology, but it's a very interesting idea of how to have a conversation about mm-hmm. a technology. I, I think it also gets to this point around curiosity, which is so important. I, I think we professionalize science to the point that even though people go into science because they're excited about it and they're curious, that really does get beaten out of them. Well, it gets beaten out of them very early. Yes. It gets beaten out of them by fifth grade, right? No, I'm serious. We've, look, we've well, looked at this, And you're right? told you, know, you I, can't I do survived it. to make yeah. 12th grade. Yeah. Well, no, you survived to the, to the fancy beef eaters. Yeah, and I think, it, yeah. I think that's really true as well. And so if you look at you know a lab like GenSpace, for instance, and where they're actually physically located, which mm-hmm. is usually sort of in, because the rent's cheap, Right mm-hmm. in underserved communities, yes. a lot of these spaces are now bringing in these public schools good, into their spaces good. and providing them tools and opportunities to a science that you know most people don't mm-hmm. have access to until they get to a university, and then right. even there, only if they're in that actual program. So, right. so can I just ask you about that? Um, so, do you see a, a real, real sense that these communities <clears throat> are not your typical white middle class communities, but they're more diverse than that? I think that's that's the goal. Okay. I think you know. I think probably, unfortunately, that in order to keep the doors open, they still have to bring in revenues, and so right. sometimes so, so people they, have to pay they to still have to yes. sort of yeah. go after people that can pay for some of these okay. things in yeah. order to support some of the other programs but we've seen now already a handful of labs that have reached out to the homeschooling community that Mm -hmm. those that community is now coming into these spaces in terms of using that as part of their curriculum um, around around biotech and biology right has anybody sort of studied this because we are after after all sitting in a university so we ought to measure things right Mm -hmm. um so has anybody um looked to see whether having a community, a DIY bio community in, you know, in a city space that's been interacting with public education system locally. Have there been impacts demonstrated and whether it is in test scores, which of course I don't want to suggest that standardized testing is the marker of success, but any or high school graduation rates or anything like this? That's a good question. I Probably, but I don't. I don't know for okay. sure. I mean, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if it's still sort of a little too early in the the growth of this community to be able to measure that in any mm-hmm. um, in any real way. But it would be an interesting thing to sort of look at. I would say the community, and and I'm guilty of this too, of sort of studying the community as well as sort of being part of it. Is mm-hmm. is frustrated about people just constantly studying them and not actually <laughs> helping them, right? Right, yeah, because yeah. they all struggle with with keeping the doors open and, mm-hmm. and attracting funding. And so this idea of just sort of, you know, academics, I know we're sitting in a, in a, in a university just studying what's going on instead of actually doing it, doing things, well, right, is, yeah. is, is frustrating for um, what I see as a really powerful um, thing that's going on and we're struggling to sort of 
get resources into these spaces. Okay, so maybe that is, uh, I, I think that that story is a wonderful exemplar of why we should not look at these as either or propositions. We should not say, ah, I could study it or I could participate in it. In it. Why aren't we doing You really both? need a hybrid. And actually, it, it raises questions around a, a new way of doing participatory research where mm-hmm. you're actually part of the community. That's a shocking proposition. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. that, that's why, I mean, one, we're really excited about this biosafety officer fellowship mm, program yes, because yeah. they're going to be not, not living in the lab, but like yeah. living and working mm-hmm. in the lab. So they're going to becoming part of the actual community so they can understand it and then actually help the community by developing these resources for them because yeah. they, they now understand it because they're part of the community. So I, I, I have to say something here and I know we We've should wrap, wrap up, up but um, the thing that really strikes me, having sort of lived um, in health and safety and academic research for most of my professional career, I actually get the sense that these community labs are more responsible and safer and take safety more seriously than a lot of the academic labs. I'm glad you say that because I say that all the time and people look at me like I'm crazy. Um, And I think that's true and it's part of the community's sort of ethics and responsibility. Mm -hmm. Um, One, because I think they want to be safe. I mean, who doesn't want to be safe? But Mm -hmm. they want to do that. And then, you know, unfortunately, they also know, though, that there is like a... um, just a really bright light and magnifying glass in the community and you know we know that there's people out there that just are waiting for a reason to sort of shut this whole thing down and so i think that is another sort of motivation um which is not the main motivation of the community their own motivation is we want to do this safely and responsibly and so we're going to sort of address these things head on and proactively that is really inspiring like really really inspiring i mean i've it's been one of it's probably the my favorite part of my job is being able to sort of be a part of this community and try to help them um thrive as in any way that i can fantastic so where can people learn more about this i would say the best place to go is is diybio.org or a new site that they're um beta testing now which is sphere.diybio.org sphere um s-p-h-e-r-e yes um which is like fear which is is where you can actually see the labs and the different projects that people are working on um and be able to sort of get a sense of what's going on excellent Excellent. Thank you so much, Todd. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. Thank you. And thanks for the audience. Yes, thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation and Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation and Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Esmeralda Parker is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.